Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we take a closer look at truck pollution as part of our In Transit series. Heavy-duty trucks are by far the largest source of air pollution from vehicles in California, according to state air regulators, and their impacts are unequal. Lower-income communities and communities of color near ports, distribution centers, and warehouses are more likely to breathe in diesel emissions and bear the health costs. We'll look at state efforts to reduce truck emissions and how cities, particularly in the Inland Empire, are demanding a pause in warehouse developments, which bring more and more trucks to the area. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Diesel trucks are durable, able to carry tons of cargo thousands of miles. They're a fixture of American industry. And the pandemic-fueled e-commerce boom has brought even more big rigs to California's roads, ports, and warehouses. But that's come at a cost to the air we breathe, and state air regulators are working to decarbonize the trucking industry. But it's not easy. Ethan Elkind, Forum's partner in our In Transit series, joins me now to take a closer look at the impact of diesel truck pollution and what's being done about it. He's director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. Hey, Ethan. Hi, Mina. Great to be with you again. Glad to have you on. So help us understand the environmental impact of diesel trucks. The State Air Resources Board has said they're the biggest source of air pollution from vehicles in California. Yeah, that's right. They are disproportionately contributing to the harmful air pollution that all of us breathe, and particularly low-income communities of color, people who live in those areas, breathe. So they're 50% of our statewide diesel particulate matter. They're 15% of our statewide nitrogen oxide emissions. And more locally in places like Los Angeles, the ports of LA and Long Beach, they're about 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions in that region. And they're the single biggest source of air pollution in the region. And just from a climate impact, from carbon emission perspective, trucks are not as big of a polluter. They're more of, a, of an issue for the, the harmful air pollution, but they're still a significant percentage of our greenhouse gas emissions. So about six to 8% of our greenhouse gas emissions globally, as well as in the United States and in California. And I think that percentage is going to increase as we decarbonize other sectors of the economy. Trucks are going to be a little bit behind our decarbonization uh, progress, as we're going to see in other sectors. So I think that percentage is likely to go up until we move towards zero emission trucks. Mm, So climate impacts, pollution impacts, they also have infrastructure impacts, right? Absolutely. Well, they cause a lot of damage to our roads. 
So they're a lot heavier than obviously in passenger vehicles. And so engineering studies have shown that they really inflict an exponential amount of damage onto a pavement uh, as the weight increases. So for example, a, a truck axle that carries 18,000 pounds, it's only nine times heavier than a, a 2000 pound automobile, but it actually does 5,000 times more damage. So it's actually exponential. And so all of us as taxpayers have to pay for the damage on the roads that these heavy trucks cause. Hmm. What's the state's response been, particularly in the pollution piece of this? Well, the Air Resources Board is the agency that regulates our sources of pollution around the state, and they have some pretty aggressive policies to try to decarbonize trucks. So uh, we have what's called the Advanced Clean Truck Rule uh, that requires uh, eventually zero emission, uh, all zero emission trucks, hopefully by the year 2045. But in the interim, from the, it's increasing from the years 2024 to 2035. Basically, we're going to move to you know different levels of zero emission trucks in each of the different types of truck sectors. Because you know my, most of us might think of trucks as just those big class eight semis that are barreling down the highways, <laughs> but there's actually a lot of different types of trucks. Yes, and the ho- the goal is ultimately to get to 100 zero emission trucks by 2045, but sooner in certain sectors. So certain areas where trucks are driving fixed routes or they're a little bit smaller in size, and those can decarbonize a lot sooner. And then there's also a separate rule that the Air Resources uh, Board has, which is uh, a zero emission truck fleet rule. And uh, that would require fleets to also decarbonize sooner. And I'll just make one last note on this, which is that California is not going it alone here. We have the ability to set these mandates because of the way the Federal Clean Air Act is structured to give California the ability to go beyond federal standards. But other states can sign on. So, for example, with the Advanced Clean Truck Rule, six states so far have joined us, which equals 20 percent of the entire market for medium and heavy duty trucks. And that's defined as trucks over 10,000 pounds in weight. So we're really affecting the market, not just here in California, but in the United States. And then that in turn affects what happens globally as well. And without getting too into the weeds, can you give us just sort of the top line phases for different types of trucks between now and 2045? Sure. Well, so by 2035, so it's class 2B or class 3 truck sales. That's a, a smaller type of truck. That needs to be 55% zero emission sales by 2035. 75% of class 4 through class 8 truck sales uh, by 2035 need to be zero emission. And then 40% of truck tractor sales. But you know, as I mentioned, within those categories, so the hope is, is that we can decarbonize faster. So for trucks on, on those fixed routes uh, that are going to be easier or trucks and fleets that are going to be easier to decarbonize because you've got purchasing power or you know routes that are relatively more straightforward to decarbonize you know as opposed to trucks that are driving hundreds of miles a day across state lines yeah and those of course are the trucks that we worry about to some extent i'm really curious what's been the response from trucking advocates i guess to put it into a broad category but but from people who represent the trucking industry to these kinds of mandates well, you know, no industry loves to be regulated and to have their business model changed. So there definitely is some resistance, but you know, the trucking industry is diverse. So you have 
the truck operators, a lot of times these are small businesses, you know, individual proprietors who own their truck and they're in a different category from big trucking fleets. You know, they might have tens of thousands of, of trucks that they need to be responsible for. But uh, the challenge for them is that, you know, maybe unlike with passenger vehicles, time is really money and they have to make, you know, really precise calculations around what the maintenance costs are going to be, what the fuel costs are going to be. So they're very concerned about the higher upfront costs of these uh, zero emission trucks, which are by and large battery powered trucks. Uh, they're concerned about how they're going to perform, you know, maybe not just in year one or two, but are they the battery going to still be, is the battery going to be viable, you know, over a decade from now? And then also around fueling it. So if it's a battery electric truck, they're concerned is the charging infrastructure going to be available with all the electricity they're going to need? And is the charging times going to be too long to really pencil out if they have to have their drivers stop by the side of the highway for an hour to charge uh, versus, you know, charging, uh, let's say overnight in a lot where they're parked, you know, which could be much easier, but also might require a lot of new infrastructure. So there's a lot of concerns around uh, some, some of those trucking advocates on the same, uh, by the same token, you have some of the manufacturers of trucks that maybe also don't like this mandate, but have, have started to come around to embrace zero emission trucks. I mean, Tesla is, has really sort of put themselves out as, as a leader here, but you've got other trucks that are already now deployed from companies like Daimler and BYD and Volvo, Kenworth, Peterbilt. So there's about 70 different models of zero emission vans and trucks and buses that are already commercially available. So the automaker side of things, there's definitely been a little bit more of an embracing of this, although it's really required this mandate to kind of get them to to act on uh, on producing these vehicles. I see. But as you say, manufacturers not loving aggressive targets that they have to meet, uh, the trucking industry as well, kind of in the same place, needing to put the infrastructure in place to be able to make this viable for them is something that you just outlined as a major concern. At the same time, we are hearing other people saying that these changes won't come soon enough. And it tends to be from communities who are bearing the brunt of diesel truck pollution in California. Where are those places? Where do they tend to be situated Ethan? Yeah, well, this is this is uh, really part of the equity challenge here that it's not uh, faced equally by all Californians, you know, who's experiencing the brunt of this pollution. So it's people who live near uh, our ports, near rail yards, distribution centers, and what we call diesel hotspots or along highways as well. And these are often low income communities of color. And the science is clear that they are facing much more adverse health effects from all of this pollution. So that includes uh, increased respiratory effects, cancer, adverse birth outcomes, uh, adverse in impacts to the brain, higher rates of heart disease, premature death. And a, a lot of these communities are, are facing pollution from multiple sources. Industrial sources are part of that, factories and refineries, things like that. But definitely the communities that live near our ports, especially in Southern California and say in places like West Oakland here in the Bay Area, around the port of Oakland, uh, and also those who are living in communities that are crisscrossed by freeways. And that's particularly acute in uh, in in the Southern California area. So uh, it's those low-income communities that really are bearing the brunt of this air pollution, whereas you know globally, we're all facing the impacts of, of carbon pollution, but even the impacts from climate change is disproportionately felt often by lower-income communities. Well, let me invite our listeners into the conversation. Curious if you're concerned about truck pollution in your neighborhood. If you live near ports, rail yards, uh, warehouses, and distribution centers, and the like, and and 
The number of trucks you see in your hometown and what kind of impact it has had on you. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Also, if you just have questions about truck pollution or the state's effort to reduce it, and if you're a truck driver, we'd also love to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Ethan, I've been hearing a lot about how the number of trucks on our roads in recent years has grown quite a bit. A lot of it has pointed to the explosive growth of the e-commerce industry. What role have we played in what we're seeing right now with regard to the number of trucks uh, that we see at these you know, hotspots, as you say, but also on our freeways and so on? Yeah, absolutely. As we've gotten into this kind of e-commerce revolution, you know, we all see a lot more delivery trucks around our neighborhoods. You know, Americans, it's not just Californians and really around the world, you know, people are not going out to purchase things as much as having those items delivered back to them. And so that means that we're seeing, particularly in our neighborhoods, a lot more of this distribution we call first mile, last mile delivery trucks uh, dropping off packages. But it also means a lot of increased activity from the port to these distribution centers. So, you know, think about Southern California and the ports of LA and Long Beach. It's forty uh, percent of the of the goods in the United States are coming through those ports, and these shipping containers are being placed onto drayage trucks from the ports and then driven to these distribution hubs in places like the Inland Empire. Uh, in the Bay Area, you're seeing uh, these shipping containers coming into the ports of Oakland and then out to distribution centers. You know, it's out in the San Joaquin Valley. And then redistributed from there, all those goods are getting distributed to uh, to homes and businesses in the urban areas. So as e-commerce has taken off, we've seen the rise of these distribution centers and these warehouses with, with very heavy truck traffic into them. And we will hear more about what it's like to live in these areas after the break. And uh, I just want to point out a stat that I saw in a Bloomberg piece about warehouses that for every one billion increase in online sales, companies need to add an additional one million square feet of warehouse space. We'll have more about pollution from large trucks and their impact on California. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow will mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with the people who joined us on Forum at the outset of the war and hear how they're feeling about it today and also how you are feeling about it as well. Today, we're looking at the impact of truck pollution in California as part of our ongoing in-transit series, all about our state's changing transportation needs. Truck pollution is felt disproportionately by communities near ports, warehouses and distribution centers where harmful emissions are concentrated. And I want to bring two more people into the conversation. We're talking with Ethan Elkind of UC Berkeley School of Law, part of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment. But I also want to bring in Rachel Uranga, a reporter covering transportation and mobility for the Los Angeles Times. Rachel, welcome to Forum. Thanks. So glad to be here. Glad to have you. Also, Amparo Munoz is a former policy director at the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice and also a resident of the Inland Empire. Amparo Munoz, thanks so much for being with us as well. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. So, so Rachel, I want to start with you. I want to home in on the Inland Empire, which is where you did the bulk of your reporting recently and also wrote a piece titled Warehouse Boom Transformed Inland Empire, Are Jobs Worth the Environmental Degradation? Talk about how the Inland Empire has changed in recent decades when it comes to growth in warehouses and distribution centers. What's happened? Sure. I mean, visually, the change is immense. If you look back, say, 1980. There were about 200 warehouses over in the Inland Empire. Um, and, and there were, I mean, compared to today's warehouses, they were relatively small. Now there's about more than 4,000 in the Inland Empire. And you see the structures everywhere. Um, they're, school, they, they're replacing schools. They're near schools. Um, and they serve really what Ethan was talking about. They serve the ports, um, which brings in about 40% of the nation's imported goods. Um, it's really the largest port um, in the nation is out here in Los Angeles and Long Beach. And they need place, they needed all those retailers and importers need storage places, need places to repackage. And the Inland Empire has provided that with their cheap land, the accessible warehouses and the proximity to trains um, that can take take out the goods to the rest of the country. It's really just been a, a hub of logistics um, for the West Coast. Yeah, you're really describing why the Inland Empire has been seen by corporations as an ideal site for warehouses and distribution centers in California. Rachel, what's that meant in terms of the number of trucks rumbling through the region every day? Well, just to give you an idea... Um, of how many trucks are coming in. Ontario, which has become, the, the city of Ontario, which is really one of, has one of the largest number of warehouses in the Inland Empire, has about two, an estimated two trucks uh, daily running through there for every resident. So there's about 95,000 daily truck trips through the city of Ontario. That's really a staggering number. Yeah, that is staggering. Amparo Munoz, you don't live in Ontario, but you do live in Fontana. I'm wondering if you can just tell me what you see on a regular basis in terms of the number of trucks, how you manage that, drive around that, so on, how it affects your life. 
Yes. So the truck traffic uh, where I live, I live in the just below the 210 freeway where the 210 and the 15 meet, just to give you an idea. And that 15 is the artery that takes you up into the high desert. And the 210 takes you all over uh, from the Inland Empire. And currently on the 10, it's under construction. They're they're widening because of the truck trips and just driving, you know, 30 miles now, you will see trucks end to end to end in the first two lanes of the freeway constantly. Um, there's very little break. When you get off the freeway, their trucks are everywhere. The trucks go where they're not supposed to go. So they'll be on residential streets. Um, there's where I live. I, I live in where two um, cities come together of Fontana and Rialto. You'll even see these makeshift truck repair shops popping up where they'll bring the refrigerated units on the side of the road. They'll have, uh, you know, do repair work, just throw everything on the street. Um, you can't go anywhere without seeing a truck. And I think the most challenging piece as a parent is knowing that your soon to be driver will be on the road facing those trucks everywhere that go anywhere on the road. They make potholes everywhere. They leave debris everywhere. And there have been a lot of my friends that have had children in accidents with, you know, facing trucks and you don't win when you face a truck. So it's not just the traffic, but it's and, and the worst part. The worst part is the number of urine filled bottles tossed all along the sides of our sidewalks um, where, you know, you want to take your kids to ride a bike and they'll ask you, what are, why are there so many yellow bottles on the side of the road? Well, you know, it doesn't pay to not show up on time. So the, the drivers are doing what they got to do, but there isn't any kind of system that's taking care of all of that. So in addition to burdening the roads, wearing down our roads, the infrastructure is incredible. We have like, you know, hazardous human waste all along our roads and sidewalks and, and where kids walk from, you know, home from school. It's, it's actually quite, quite terrible for our community. Yeah, you're talking about health impacts. There are broader ones related to breathing problems that you have talked about. When did you start noticing that you were having breathing problems? Yeah, so um, I had never had asthma growing up. Um, I was pregnant with my second child. We had just moved to to Fontana. We had bought our first home. And, um, we, you know, to stay healthy, I started walking around the neighborhood and they had just put in these new sidewalks because Amazon moved in and put in brand new sidewalks. So I was excited walking around and I kept noticing all these trucks idling, but didn't think anything of it because I didn't know. When I was about six months pregnant, I couldn't get my oxygen levels above the 80s. Um, I was struggling to breathe and the, the doctors asked me, you know, how I was managing my asthma. And I was like, I don't have asthma. And they said, well, you do now. So in the long run of this pregnancy, I couldn't make it to the full, you know, 40 weeks. Um, I just couldn't breathe. So they took my son um, when he hit 36 weeks and um, he was also born with asthma. That doesn't happen in our family. That didn't happen before. And um, he actually came home with a nebulizer and oxygen tank um, and he struggled to breathe. So as a parent, you know, you spend your first nights like, watching your baby. Well, I was watching my baby to make sure my baby kept breathing. So, you know, a few years passed or a year passed and we found out, you know, that it was asthma and, and 
And I was so confused, like, where did this come from? And they told me it was an environmental. And that was the first time I had ever heard about something called PM 2.5, about the effects of ozone. And that was the first time I learned that those two factors that are being, that are the byproduct of, you know, truck traffic could actually harm a baby as it's developing in your Mm. womb, a a place and time that's supposed to be safe. Um, Amparo Munoz, yeah, is a resident of Fontana living near warehouses and witnessing daily truck traffic. Rachel Udonga is a reporter covering transportation and mobility for the LA Times. And Ethan Elkind is director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law, also host of the podcast Climate Break. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversations with your thoughts and questions Pat writes, please keep in mind that every truck represents one good job or three if you count support personnel, jobs we desperately need. It's much better to invest in cleaner trucks and better trained or better paid drivers to drive in the most fuel efficient manner. Ethan, I'm curious about the impacts of diesel emissions on the truck drivers themselves. We're hearing from Paro some pretty devastating impacts, but also just curious if you have a sense about how they impact truck drivers. Yeah, I haven't seen any any research on that, but I can only imagine, you know, for these drivers inhaling uh, the diesel pollution, if we know what's happening to residents around that area that these trucks are driving and what would happen to the drivers themselves. And, you know, I get the point about, you know, the labor impact. These This is a, a really common job in California. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people who are connected uh, you know, work-wise to this occupation. And I think that is part of what the Air Resources Board is trying to do is protect these workers, but also provide a, a clean technology for them. I mean, there's there's some options to potentially route some of this truck, the freight that the trucks are are moving onto rail. I mean, that would that would potentially uh, you know change the trucking industry. But otherwise, if we're talking about zero emission trucks, then you know these drivers can continue their livelihood and have a safer occupation to engage in. But there would be other labor impacts for sure. So, you know, for example, these uh, battery electric trucks require a lot less maintenance and um, and repairs. And so, you know, you're probably going to see some job losses in those kinds of fields, but they would be offset uh, society-wide, economy-wide by the savings from that maintenance costs, and then that savings would be reinvested elsewhere. Um, But absolutely, it's a harm to these drivers to have to be breathing in these fumes on a day-in, day-out basis. And I understand we have Scott from Sonoma on the line right now. Hi, Scott, you're on. Excellent. How are you, ma'am? I'm well. Go right ahead. Yeah. I have a couple of... uh, Everything you're saying is good. Um, The electric truck market has not uh, has not found a solution for many of the miles of commerce that diesel trucks can provide. I haul lumber for a company in Sonoma. I go to Eureka. I pick up 50,000 pounds of lumber. We bring it home. We make trusses. We sell them to people building houses. And that's just under 500 miles for me to go there and back and a number of hills. And there's no way that a truck that's not diesel powered with a turbocharger is going to make that trip and do it in a consistent manner to keep business and commerce flowing. Yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for sharing that. And Amparo Munoz, while the, uh, 
the state is saying that it wants to phase out diesel-powered trucks, especially by 2045. What are your thoughts on the state's efforts and the timeline that it is on to do that, especially with regard to the fact that it needs to build up the infrastructure? It needs time to build up the infrastructure to be able to support it, because as Scott is saying, it simply doesn't exist for him to be able to haul the tens of thousands of pounds that he hauls across so many miles. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of solutions in the works. Um, there's there's the hydrogen fuel that's being developed right now at the ports, and they're exploring it for long-term um, truck hauling, although, you know, that we're, it's in the process right now, and it's not just the electrification of the fleet. There's also alternatives for much heavier um, weighted transportation needs. Um, and then, but I do want to kind of focus back on one of the things that the the caller said earlier, or the comment that they made earlier was about the jobs. And um, one of the things that we have seen in our region, at least, is that the, the jobs that are here are highly replaceable with automation. So although that 13% of the Inland Empire's jobs are related to logistics, our replacement value, so 100% means you could be 100% replaced by a robot, and one means you can't, the Inland Empire as a whole is 85% replaceable by automation. So although we may have jobs today, those can be replaced easily. And for the next, what is it, 23 years that we're going to have pollution because, you know, because of the, the current levels of diesel particulates in our region, that's how many children affected. I had a monumentous effect on my health when I was, you know, walking around pregnant in months 23 years is a whole lot of births that are going to be affected. Mm -hmm. And especially when you consider that there's 139 schools in the Inland Empire that are less than, uh, you know, 500, 300 feet from a warehouse. Literally, Zimmerman Elementary School was sold to a warehouse developer so that he could get the perfect shape of his multi-million square foot warehouse. And those children are going to be displaced and moved to a truck repair shop. So just as harmful, just as terrible, but it's it's clear that there's an intersection where solutions could be found. Mm -hmm. But I think that we need to take away some of these myths that we can't, you know, we can't progress. We can't care about human health over jobs or we can't care about human health over intervention and innovation. So I think if we take those myths away, we can really focus on solving these problems. Rachel Uranga. How is local government responding to the kinds of concerns that Amparo is raising with regard to the pollution impacts of warehouses uh, that are bringing more and more trucks to the region? Sure. Well, I think that really depends on where you are looking. I mean, if we look at the Inland Empire, there are some communities like Ontario, which I mentioned earlier, really is the hub of warehouses right now, they have more warehouses than any of the other um, inland empire communities that they really seem to be welcoming private development. You know, Amazon is building one of their largest warehouses there. The airport in Ontario serves as a major hub for freights. But then there are other communities where you're seeing a lot of pushback and people are saying, hey, you know, is this really worth it? For all those reasons we discussed. Um, I talked with a councilwoman in Pomona, one of the cities that borders the Inland Empire. And she really, alarm bells went off for her when she went to this local community health fair and found out by accident, much like Amparo did, um, 
that she didn't have her full lung function. And she said, wait a second here, you know, something really needs to be done. And she drove um, an effort to get a moratorium placed on the city where they stopped building for a year. And they said, hey, let's study this. Let's look at it. Let's see what can be done to offset the impacts, the environmental impacts that, that these warehouses are having and the trucks that they bring along with them. And she's, they're definitely not the only city. Norco, another city down there has placed a moratorium um, as, and, as has Colton. And the Assemblywoman uh, Elorisa Reyes has also pushed for a legislative um, way to place a moratorium. Now, last year, she had introduced legislation that would have placed a moratorium on building as they study alternatives. Um, that ultimately was pulled, um, but my understanding is that the this year, she's going to come back with something else um, similar. Mm. So you're talking about a moratorium on warehouse developments. And it sounds like what Amparo was alluding to is the fact that those who support warehouse development see it as a as a big job creator. And those who do not are, as your reporting has suggested, really questioning the the cost of the whether questioning whether it's worth it, whether it's worth the cost of the environmental impact that we're seeing, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, supporters of warehouse development largely support it along economic lines. Mm -hmm. um, Riverside and San Bernardino counter, counties, excuse me, um, really were able to bounce back during the pandemic because of warehouse development, because of all the jobs they brought in, because people were sitting at home clicking and buying online. And that really helped fuel job growth inside these warehouses. And, and really is part of the reason you're seeing this, a, another spurt of growth and development in the Inland Empire. Um, but those jobs, as Amparo has said, are tend to be low paying jobs. Um, and workers in the Inland Empire are making a lot less money than other workers in California, in part because it's become a logistics hub. We're talking with Rachel Uranga of the LA Times, who covers transportation and mobility. Hamparo Munoz, who lives near warehouses in Fontana, former policy director at the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice. Also, Ethan Elkind is with us, our partner in our In Transit series, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. And you, our listeners, stay with us after the break. We'll get to more of your questions and comments. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya! How? 
You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about state efforts to reduce pollution from large trucks, which are by far the biggest source of air pollution from vehicles in California. We're talking about how pollution from trucks is felt disproportionately by communities near warehouses, distribution centers, and ports where harmful emissions are concentrated. We're talking with Ethan Elkind of UC Berkeley School of Law, their climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. Rachel Uranga, covering transportation mobility for the LA Times. And Amparo Munoz, a former policy director at the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice. And you, our listeners, are also sharing your thoughts as well. Barbara writes, I have long been very concerned about the impacts of the large truck pollution on my grandchildren who live a mile from 280 in Alameda. At times, the soot is visible. I am astounded and dismayed that this dirty air has been permitted for so long. Tina writes, the U.S. does a poor job of imagining the impacts of disruptive commerce, and now communities have to pay, both financially and with their lives, to attempt to fix the issues that these disruptive companies won't. Amparo Munoz, I'm curious if there are things that you would like people to do on an individual level who clearly care about the impact that it's having on communities, communities like yours and their own. Yes. So I think the biggest thing to do is become aware of the process for land use in your community. This is something that, you know, you you take for granted. You don't really think you need to get involved. I, I didn't think I needed to get involved. Um, but then I discovered that land use is probably the most important aspect of your local government. It determines where you have grocery stores, you know, where you have places to shop, where you have places to eat, how the roads are are, uh, zigzagging through your community, and where and when developers can come to your area and either um, create something that's very patriotic and community focused or is a multinational corporation that uses the resources in the region and exports extracts all their value to multinational corporations that have no loyalty to your community like my community of Fontana multinational corporations are coming in you you heard um Ethan describe the the devastation they caused to the roads well there's really not a lot of tax revenue generated from these warehouses for the community so in the city of ontario like uh, rachel has been talking about with all their warehouses and they have actually more warehouses in ontario than they do in all of los angeles which is pretty surprising they also have huge um you know commercial areas and they have an airport so ontario has 664 warehouses and you would think that they wouldn't need tax revenue based on all that that um infrastructure from these warehouses but (laughs) ontario residents have been asked to pay taxes now so that so that's really proof that those warehouses, multinational corporations do not benefit the community. So we're saying all this because without the community being present, without you being involved in land use, without you understanding what a general plan is, without you going to city council meetings or holding your local officials um, accountable, um, there is a, a potential for, you know, corporations to come into your area and strip all the resources away from from your community and you know pay you less like in the inland empire we're making five dollars less than the rest of the state we're five dollars below and and or we have temporary jobs that are not full benefited there are some 
logistics jobs that are um, full time with benefits, but the vast majority aren't. And what that ends up happening to your community is you become, you know, for lack of a better description and for a visual, your community becomes strip mined by these multinational corporations and you're left with the health impacts. So the story I told you about my son, that's an expensive health hazard, right? We're paying sometimes $1,500 in prescriptions, medications, equipments, hospital visits because of the health impacts left behind, Mm -hmm. you know, after the dust settles, so to speak, from the truck traffic. So I think getting involved is important. Rachel Odonga, you reached out to Governor Newsom's office as part of your reporting and laid out the concerns of the Inland Empire residents that you spoke to. What was the response you got? Sure. Well, um, There was a group of environmentalists, including Amparo, who asked Governor Newsom to place a moratorium on building warehouses in the area. They sent out a letter. They laid out their concerns. And, you know, the Newsom administration has not said whether he supports anything like a moratorium. But what they did say is they pointed to some of the policies that they have already um, implemented and supported as their way of mitigating these deep impacts. Mm, so the one with regard to air pollution essentially was what people well, the, the most. The, yeah, the, they pointed to the order requiring heavy duty truck manufacturers transition to zero emission by 2045. Mm. So that you're not going to be selling um, diesel fueled trucks after that day. Rachel Luranga of the LA Times and Amparo Munoz, former policy director of the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice. Really appreciate both of you being on just to share your direct experience. Again, we're talking about the impacts of truck pollution. Ethan Elkind remains with us, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. And I see a lot of our listeners have a lot of questions about the zero emissions mandate and how we're supposed to get there. So let me get to those questions. Craig in Alameda, you're on now. Thanks, Craig. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Great discussion. Uh, my uh, question stems to the fact or comment, can we talk a little bit more about hydrogen fuel cell for trucks? Because mm-hmm. so far we've just heard about battery-powered vehicles yeah. for trucks, which quite frankly are not suitable for long-haul distances, as the trucker mentioned, uh, for Northern California. And also if we can talk a little bit about some of the incentives that perhaps these individuals could benefit from. And lastly... At the end of the forum, we can post some of the statistics on the implementation of the zero emission policy. Would be great. Thank you all. Oh, well, thank you, Craig. So, in terms of hydrogen fuel cell, is that a better answer, Ethan? A bit of a debate, although I think it's largely over between you know batteries and hydrogen, which is going to be the solution for trucks. And I think right now, battery uh, powered trucks is is winning that debate. So your caller, for example, earlier Scott talked about you know driving 500 miles up hills. That's actually a bit of an outlier. You know, 60 percent of trucks in the United States really only go about 100 miles or less on a daily basis. Uh, half half of all trucks only travel within 50 miles of their base. And, you know, so really just a small fraction of our trucks are driving long distances. So battery powered vehicles are really going to be suitable for the vast majority of, of truck trips. And so it's just so sort of long distance, you know, edge cases, maybe 
10% of all trucks that are actually traveling, you know, more than 200 miles uh, are going to be needing possibly a different solution. Although that's, that's also debatable because we have seen battery prices come down about 90% in cost over the last decade. We've seen a lot of innovation around energy density with batteries. So it could be that 10, 15 years from now, batteries could actually meet a hundred percent of all the use cases for trucks, but there might be an increment that's say five or 10% of, uh, of trucks that we need a different solution than batteries. Although actually we could also consider swapping out batteries, particularly if it's done at a, at a fleet level. So a truck would pull in and swap in a new fully charged battery and keep driving. But to answer the question around hydrogen, hydrogen can fuel as quickly as gasoline and it, it you, it's, creates electricity through a fuel cell on the, on the truck itself. But the problem with hydrogen is that there's inefficiencies in using hydrogen. So to convert essentially at this point, natural gas, other fossil fuels into hydrogen, and then build out the infrastructure, have the hydrogen then convert to electricity in the vehicle, you're losing almost half of that original energy. So there's a lot of inefficiency there. And we just haven't seen hydrogen fuel cell trucks really prove themselves like we've seen with battery powered trucks. I'm not negative on, on hydrogen overall. I think there might be a role for it again with that small increment. But I really think battery powered trucks is going to be the the majority of what we need going forward. Let me go to caller Sasan in Berkeley next. Hi, Sasan. Am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, perfect. Actually, thanks. Um, Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on and for having this really important conversation. Um, I, I actually, my question was really related to what Ethan just said. I. I you know, I think in these conversations, so much of the, the dialogue and the oxygen gets sucked up by these sort of edge cases, frankly, of like mm. a long haul truck that's carrying timber and uh, or a snowplow, which, you know, obviously these are challenging, although I'm I'm pretty bullish on the progress that batteries are, are making already. But but as Ethan said, you know, 60 percent, I've even seen stats like almost three quarters of today's truck market could be electrified with existing battery electric technology and more than half of that could do so while saving costs, saving fueling and maintenance costs over the lifetime of the vehicle. So my question, I, I mean, I know that's more of a comment, but my question is really like, how do we stop <laughs> allowing these edge cases, which, you know, hopefully will be resolved in the 2030s to distract from the massive amounts of progress we need to be making this decade on delivery trucks, on short haul drayage trucks, kicking trucks between warehouses and ports, um, on the regional haul, those vehicles that are frankly, you know, rising in VMT as a fast proportion of the vehicle's miles traveled mm. and, and increasing oil consumption in GHGs and pollution in communities the most is, the, is these trucks that are really electrifiable. Yeah, thanks, Sasan. Uh, Ethan. Yeah, Important well, I points. think, so, yeah, absolutely. I think Sasan brings up a good point, and it really underscores why the Air Resources Board has taken this regulatory approach of trying to move quicker on those sort of fixed route, easy to electrify truck routes, and then saving the harder edge cases, you know, really out towards mid century, because who knows where technology and costs will be at that point. But I think one important point to make about these electric trucks right now is that they are more expensive, sometimes two to three more expensive up front uh, compared to the cost of a, of a diesel truck. So for example, a diesel semi is usually in the sort of mid $100,000 price range. And we're seeing these electric trucks more like three to uh, uh, sometimes as high as $500,000. However, there's a lot of savings with these trucks in terms of reduced operating costs and fueling cost as well. I mean, some estimates says that they're about two and a half 
times cheaper per mile to operate on electric uh, fuel than than diesel fuel. And there are a lot of incentives. This goes to your caller earlier was asking about incentives. So California right now offers about $150,000 voucher for electric drayage trucks. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed Congress and President Biden signed uh, last year is another $40,000. So there are a lot of incentives to really try to jumpstart this market. And I think what regulators are hoping we'll see is the same success that we saw on the light duty passenger vehicle side of things, where with a little bit of incentives and rebates and support from the state and federal government, eventually the market will transform and bring down costs for everybody. We're talking about state efforts to reduce pollution from large trucks. We're hearing from you, our listeners, and from Ethan Elkind of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ethan, this listener tweets, I grew up in Richmond with heavy trucks racing by on 80 and 580, each less than 1.5 miles from home and to the port. We need a strong rule from the California Air Resources Board to bring clean air to all of our communities. Combustion engines have no place in a pollution-free truck standard. What is this listener referring to in terms of combustion engines have no place in pollution in a pollution-free truck standard? Are, Are California air regulators trying to carve out certain sectors, uh, thinking that fully zero emissions will be hard to reach and certain combustion engine or hybrid things will be able to uh, accomplish the goal. I'm just curious if there's something more here to what this listener is saying. Yeah, I think I think what the listeners are alluding to is just that sort of phased in approach that the Air mm-hmm. Resources Board is really trying to give the industry some flexibility to really go with those easier to decarbonize uh, truck trips and truck types first uh, and delaying. I mean, we, uh, we see on the passenger vehicle side, there's a mandate that by 2035, there will be no more internal combustion engine passenger vehicles sold. But that's a, there's a 10-year delay to 2045 when that same requirement would kick in for heavy-duty trucks. So I think that's really just a recognition that there are some of those edge cases. But this is also something that the Air Resources Board is going to continue to update. You know, They're always putting the, uh, giving themselves opportunities off-ramps, no pun intended, uh, to keep reevaluating these policies and you know look at the data, look at the costs, look at the real-world deployment challenges. And if there's more success success happening faster than they expected, they can really improve and, and ratchet down those uh, those regulatory requirements in reflection of, of that reality. So, you know, they're giving themselves a, a multi-decade runway here, but really trying to start with those easy to decarbonize sectors first. Well, let me go to caller Art in Santa Rosa. Hi, Art, you're on. Yes, hi, Mina, thank you. Um, in my uh, days of travel across the U.S., whether it be by passenger car or motorcycle, I've uh, stopped at many truck stops, and I noticed that all of the trucks just sit there idling for many minutes, may, mm-hmm. maybe hours. I just wondered, was wondering, what is the rationale behind that? Mm. Art, thanks. Idling. I've heard about that as a concern, uh, not just from Art, but from others even. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I, I actually don't know, but my assumption is is that there's either some economics involved in that and in powering down the engine, or perhaps they need to operate something on on board to keep it going. But it it's a great point. I think it also uh, helps illustrate that you know the charging infrastructure piece of this is going to involve potentially some downtime for trucks that are charging, and so there are requirements that drivers have to idle for a certain amount of time. And one of the things we haven't really talked about on this on this program yet is the advances in charging uh, technology in a innovation that's happening chargers, which are, which are just as suitable for trucks, really increasing the amount of power that they can provide, uh, the capacity and reliability. And so as all those things improve, I think those truck idling times could potentially be transitioned to just repowering a, a vehicle at some of these truck stops. Although, you know, as we've discussed, most truck trips really aren't that long in distance. And I think, you know, overnight charging is going to be fine for, for most of those vehicles. Well, Ed writes, I drive commercially, and I'd like to see a study done on how many commercial vehicle accidents are rear ends. For some reason, the general public wants to get in front of us and slam on the brakes all the time. Most of the commercial vehicles carry a lot of weight, and they just cannot stop like regular vehicles can. So curious based on this question. Thanks, Ed, for the reminder. Um, Would electric trucks break faster? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, they're going to have regenerative braking. They do have regenerative braking, so they can rely on capturing some of that energy to decelerate. But actually, I think the more interesting question is their acceleration. I mean, anyone who's been stuck driving behind a truck has seen how slowly they accelerate. But we've seen some of the early data from these electric trucks that they are accelerating very quickly. And there's actually been some reports from some of the folks I've talked to in the industry of accidents because people are assuming they can outgun these electric trucks and pass them, but they're actually getting clipped. They're, they're running into the trucks because... Because, you know, just one stat, for example, Tesla says their Tesla semi can accelerate zero to 60 in 20 seconds. So that it's going to be a big sea change for, I think, how people drive on the roads if you're having these trucks that are no longer you know lumbering to get started. So uh, it, it's definitely going to change our communities and, and potentially create some accidents in some unanticipated ways. But I think the, the, the deceleration piece of it, I think, will be assisted by the fact that electric vehicles really are built to capture that energy and, and use regenerative braking to, to reach charge the batteries. Well, Ethan, we're at the end of the hour, but this mandate for trucks, for California trucks, <laughs> to fully decarbonize by 2045 and these interim targets, are we going to meet them based on what you're seeing with regard to the infrastructure that needs to be set up, the technology that needs to be developed? What do you think? I think we will. Just looking at the progress that we've seen with batteries on the on the light duty vehicle side, you're seeing so much innovation. And, and really, all the manufacturers needed was just a strong signal, policy signal. And California's provided that through the Air Resources Board. And I think you're also seeing some interesting business models coming around. So there's actually a, a company with a similar name to this show, Forum Mobility in Oakland, that's actually <laughs> aggregating rebates for electric trucks and infrastructure to sell to fleet so that all they need to do is subscribe to the company and they don't even have to buy the vehicle vehicles outright. They can just pay a monthly subscription fee to fuel and, and and operate these vehicles. So between the innovation on this kind of business side and the software side and the hardware side, I do think we're going to get there, but it will take sustained policy attention. And that requires you know listeners uh, tuning in today to really get involved and, and, and make their opinions known about this. Well, Ethan, thanks so much. Ethan Alkind of UC Berkeley, host of the podcast Climate Break. Thank you, Caroline Smith and Jericho Reininger for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. 